The more I do or the more experience I have, the quicker I ask for help. It's a great lesson I learned as a first year consultant. I would only be too happy to turn to a colleague and ask for, what do you think? What's your take on this? I'm delighted to be hosting this new UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. But for those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with their fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. As a global and diverse School of Medicine, UCD naturally has been greatly enriched by attracting highly talented clinical academics who graduated from other Irish or international medical schools. They are now valued members of our UCD community and you will hear from them too. The MGA is your organization offering you a lifelong partnership with UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, where episodes will go out every two weeks, graduates will give us a trip down memory lane when describing their time at UCD and on some occasions in other schools of medicine and their experience as junior doctors. They will discuss their stellar careers in their chosen specialty and the highlights and the challenges they encountered during their careers and how they share their expertise and coach others. On a personal level, they will discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance where that's possible and books for us to enjoy and holiday locations we should be thinking about. Our interviewees have compelling stories to tell that will spark your curiosity about life in the clinical specialty they have chosen. I am Professor Murish Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Therapeutics at UCD. I was Professor of Medicine and Consultant Physician at St. Vincent's University Hospital from 1977 to 2006 and Dean of the UCD School of Medicine from 2000 to 2006. Importantly, I'm also a proud UCD graduate from the class of 1964. Today, I'm meeting with Professor Alistair Nicholl, a TCD graduate of 1998, uh, who also got his PhD from UCD in 2008. Uh, currently, he is Chair of Critical Care Medicine at UCD and Consultant Intensivist at St. Vincent's University Hospital. And how important that discipline has been in the last two years of the COVID pandemic, that's for sure. He has a formidable national and international research reputation by virtue of his major successes in attracting multi-million research grants and participation in collaborative research consortia spanning Ireland, the UK, Europe, Australia and Canada. But I leave the further details to Alistair when we progress to the conversation. Alistair, you're very welcome. Can I put you in the time machine and bring you back to your halcyon students days in Trinity College. Did you always want to do medicine 
what were the key experiences in your undergraduate years? And uh, were there any outstanding teachers or mentors who had an influence on you? You made me smile, actually, just by asking, do they always want to do medicine? And the answer to that was no. I actually, I had accepted a place in Queens. I'm from Belfast, you can probably tell from my voice, to do actually a Master's of um, Electrical Engineering. It was an accelerated 10-place course in a 50-class bachelor's. Two of my co- friends and colleagues were going to do that as well. And I, I had filled in the CAO form. So I, ke- I put medicine first, law second, theoretical physics third. Mm-hmm. And um, I got offered a place in Trinity. And I said, well, look, I'll come down for a year um, and then I'll go back and I'll do the Master's of Electrical Engineering in, um, in Queens. And I ended up in a very smelly flat in Ranla with three other friends and the rest is history. I had a great time and really enjoyed my undergraduate experience, learned a lot. But I think actually, when I think back of that fork in the road, I have a big interest in research. And I think that was driving my interest in engineering, trying to figure things out, trying to problem solve. And I was able to bring that to well, my clinical role in medicine, but then also for a research thing. So I think that that is where it started to come together for me. And I felt very happy in, as an undergraduate. I have to say, I think looking back at it, very carefree days. Back in those days, medical classes were pretty small. There were, I think, 94 in our class. Mm-hmm. And so you actually knew everybody. Uh, there was a six-year course and the various like, modules of things. You, you actually spent time with all of those people over many years. And actually, it's funny, we as a class, we've sort of come back together in a WhatsApp group through the pandemic. And people are all in very different places. But to communicate, provide support, it's actually been a very nice community that's followed me and I, I think the rest of our classmates since then. That camaraderie is wonderful. It's universal. Uh, people stuck together for six years. Uh, uh, there's bound to be a great chemistry there. But with regard to... Uh, Teachers, are there any that stood out uh, that impressed you or otherwise? The, the vast majority of the experiences actually were very positive. They were the days when I'm sure many will remember where you were to a large degree left to your own devices and you were given steers and pointers, encouraged. And I have to say, um, I think actually Maura O'Brien for the professor of anatomy there was a, a great teacher. She was uh, great fun, taught a lot and um, she said to me once that um, I had long hair back in the days, that no matter what I said in my anatomy viva, if I didn't get my hair cut, I wasn't going to pass. So uh, I learned two very good lessons that day. Really, really enjoyed working with her, learned a lot and got the hair cut. And, and a wonderful way with students as well. So the halcyon days have now gone into the rearview mirror and here you are with your parchment, conferring day, proud family around you. And then the cold draft of anticipation of going into clinical medicine, being an intern uh, from day one. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, where you did your junior hospital training over those early years. And again, who sparked your interest uh, among your mentors or overseers? I was a medical student in the Meath and Adelaide Hospitals. So we were the first interns in the brand new Tala Hospital when it opened in 99. And so we just had to get to grips with, you know, working in a hospital environment. And like, I think 
to most interns, it comes as a sharp shock when you're handed the beep, especially the arrest beep, and you have to go and do things. And I think that's actually when I got an interest in uh, anesthesia or intensive care in particular. As I was going through the training scheme, I, I, I saw that the intensivists went down with 3D colleagues and sorted out you know, the big problems. It was sort of the exciting stuff when you're you know, very early in your career that people come down and actually can do definitive things to support organs and to get patients uh, out of the initial resource period, but then support them, you know, whether they get their definitive surgery or whatever else. And that seemed a, an exciting path to me. So when I finished my intern year, I got onto the, the anaesthetic scheme and I went down to uh, Waterford. I was a first year trainee down in Waterford. And I have to say, I had a super year down there. I was the first first year anaesthetic trainee they had ever had. They had never had so, someone so junior before. And a number of actually great mentors and friends over there, John Dunphy and Anesthesia and Brefney O'Sullivan and Intensive Care, gave me a real interest for the discipline and an enthusiasm to learn. And I think then I, I, I went through the, the junior scheme and then it was the, the senior scheme at, at the time. And uh, Maria Donnelly and Tala was actually of great influence. At that stage, I was thinking of going to Australia to do clinical work. And she suggested I would do maybe some research with uh, um, my PhD supervisor, who became Paul McLaughlin here. And that was another big fork in the road, just clinical or clinical and research. So I think I credit or blame her for all of that. I see. So you then had the gift of uh, knowing what you're going to do from an early stage. So many people... Uh, agonize over the choices ahead of them and find it difficult to make up their mind. So it was great that uh, you knew the path ahead of you. Uh, do you think the uh, electrical engineering um, vibe influenced you as well with all the machinery and life support uh, gadgetry of anesthesia? There's no question about it. There, there is a, there's a, a proceduralist of, you know, anesthesia and intensive care are sort of the same. They're, you know, in, in intensive care, we support organs. Organs fail and we support them through pharmaceutical and mechanical means. And then, you know, we hope that buys us time to get the patient through. And not only for research, but for clinical work, you have to have a, an understanding of the sort of the, the human, either pharmaceutical or mechanical interactions. And we see that more and more with the speciality with the development of extracorporeal life support, kidney dialysis machines, and all of those things over the last number of decades. And then coming to the period of uh, ultra-specialised uh, specialty training, where did you go then? I think circuitous routes around things. So in my later years of my scheme training, I actually took time off and did a PhD. So I did that during the end phase of my uh, specialised training. And I did a three-year lab-based PhD here in UCD. And as I said, with Paul McLaughlin, the professor of physiology, it was super fun. And I got to learn research in the controlled environment of a laboratory where you can actually take out a lot of external factors and just look at what you want to look at. But we all know clinical medicine is far from that. So when I finished my PhD, I actually then went looking for two things. I wanted to get some additional intensive care training, but I actually wanted to get some clinical research training as well. And then, I, so I went to Melbourne. So the Aussies would be, would have been the best known clinical trialists in ICU at the time. The Australians and the Canadians were far ahead. 
of everybody else. And I find a job doing a senior research fellow for one year in the, this Australian New Zealand intensive care research centre in Melbourne. And that one year of a, re, a clinical research post turned out to be five years where I did a senior research fellow job, a senior lecturer job, then an associate professor job. And at the same time, I actually melded doing the Australian fellowship of two years of intensive care and six months of medicine into that as well. And then at the end of that, I find myself as a consultant and an associate professor in um, the Alfred Hospital in Monash University. And then what drew you back to Ireland? So I think it's the same thing that draws everybody back. It's... Um, I had two young kids and I had uh, my parents and my wife's parents, both living in Ireland, and an opportunity to come and work in Ireland with a young family. And like everything in life, it's, it's about luck and timing. And uh, the things lined up for a job in Ireland at that time. And obviously, the first consultant job back in Ireland, was that in St. Vincent's University Hospital? And, and you've been there since? I have indeed. I have indeed. And again, um, the hospital and the university were very supportive at the time because both knew I had a, I had a, a real interest in research. So I came back and did a, a consultant job and then that became an academic job over time as well. How have you seen the specialty develop in Ireland since you've been away? Well, I think you covered part of it at the very start. Um, if I had said I was an intensivist to a taxi driver or you know, to someone else who wasn't in, in the medical field two years ago, they would have no idea what I did. And then when I started to explain it, many people would still not really know what it, what it is and what it does. I, I think the public recognition of what intensive care is has changed completely uh, in the last two years during the COVID pandemic. That's resulted in a few things. Um, I think the government uh, sees the importance of, uh, you know, adequately resourced intensive care system to maintain the running of the normal hospitals, but also to provide resilience in our healthcare system for events such as COVID-19 or other pandemics, which will come again. It's astonishing how, how, how it uh, occupied that Cinderella role for so many years with low recognition uh, and uh, even among colleagues as well. It's great to see that change, even though like wars and pandemics, uh, it, it takes cataclysmic events to 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 accelerate that kind of change the only thing i give is actually a lot of people put in a lot of hard work behind the scenes so as you say for a while intensive care may may have been something the anaesthetists did you know in between theater cases or when they weren't in theater but um again the australians and the canadians have developed it into a speciality yeah. and ireland has followed the same in the last <clears throat> six years with it now being a speciality in the medical register yeah it's certainly overdue for its day or years in the sun, uh, that's for sure. Academically you'd, and clinically, you'd be regarded as being in mid-career. And obviously, you've an awful lot of achievements ahead of you and plans for that. But uh, if you just look back on the story so far, I mean, wh how would you characterize your uh, main achievements, the things you're most proud of? Maybe the easiest way to think about that is in two ways. So to talk about maybe the, the research, what the research has delivered is one, but I might not concentrate on actually the academic outputs first, but actually the infrastructure that it's laid. 
And again, I, I can't take the credit for, for this by any stretch of the imagination. There's many, many people, but um, we have a really vibrant intensive care research community in Ireland. There are three professors of intensive care, in, in three chairs, one in Belfast, Danny McCauley, one in Galway, John Laffey, and one in the College of Surgeons in Beaumont Hospital, uh, George Curley, and, you know, and, and many other people who have really developed well, a basic science research programme and a clinical research programme, which now um, there's a real sense of collaboration. There are pathways for you know, junior hospital doctors who are interested in academia to get involved and we have an active clinical trials group. And the whole idea of that is it's about collaboration, not competition. And we aim to help each other achieve the research goals. So I think one of the things to be very proud of is the, our clinical trials group. I was the chair of that for the last five years and my colleague John Laffey's just taken over. And again, there'll be other people in the future. And that's continuing to grow and build our national and international reputation. Uh, the other piece of infrastructure is it's called the Clinical Trial Network, and it's it's in UCD and it's a ICU specific trial coordinating centre. So we actually do the bits and pieces of trials, help organise them at sites, tell the doctors and nurses what they need to do, design the studies, support them and deliver them, and that is a new infrastructure that we've had over the last six years, funded by the HRB, and it's really allowed us to have you know just a complete step change in productivity so those two things i think are you know networks and groups that will continue in the future and will ensure the success of future icu researchers for the research i think if i was to talk about things we're proudest of i would have to say at this stage it's been the research response to the covid19 pandemic back in 2009 i found myself in australia as an intensivist when the swine flu pandemic hit. And I was working with probably, you know, the best clinical trial group in the world, and they were unable to deliver a trial in time. You know, the time it took to get the protocol written, uh, ethics approvals, regulatory approvals, funding, startup sites, contracts, it was impossible. And, and they were the best. So from that time, a number of us said, we have to get ready for the next time. And there will be a next time. So since 2014, we've been working on pandemic preparedness and that allowed us to do a few things. An observational study that was going to describe when a new pandemic came, what would be wrong with the patients and how would they, you know, how would the pandemic affect them? And 2,000 patients were involved in Ireland and 700,000 globally. Our colleague in Edinburgh, Ken Bally, led a study where we looked at the gen genetics and we've always thought there would be genetic associations with outcome in ICU. But ICU is so heterogeneous that it was never realised. And then all of a sudden, everybody got sick with the same thing. So that was able to demonstrate for the first time genetic associations with mortality and COVID-19. So again, that was a step change forward. And then the biggest thing was that this trial called REMAPCAP. Now, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's a randomised, embedded, multifactorial adapt platform trial. But it's just a new way of doing trials. It's more efficient, allows us to rapidly answer multiple questions at once. And it allowed, now our group, along with many others collaborating across the world, to show that steroids were beneficial in ICU patients, that tocilizumab, an IL-6 receptor antagonist, reduced mortality in hospital stay in ICU patients. And, um, you know what I mean? So, and that we were able to demonstrate that treatments were effective, but also to demonstrate that treatments weren't effective, like Kaletra, 
convalescent plasma, hydroxychloroquine, that some of these things were not helpful and may even be harmful. So I actually think the proudest thing would be to be able, in, I mean, in light speed time within two years, to develop new answers to a new problem at the bedside for clinicians. It's probably yeah. been our you know, greatest achievement. That's remarkable, uh, and and no false modesty. It 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 was a truly first of all a huge logistical problem, and then the effort that goes into setting up collaborative consortia. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, achievement. There are high points, but uh, inter interspersed with high points in life are sometimes the low points or the challenges where uh, you feel almost swamped by lack of knowledge or skill or personal resources. I mean, have, have you ever confronted that kind of uh, adversity in your clinical or research existence? I mean, I've been overworked many times and I have found myself um, overcommitted to deliver the things I want to and maybe don't, haven't prioritised things as well as that should have been. In, in a sense, the more I do or the more experience I have, the quicker I ask for help these days. I actually, I, it's a great lesson I learned as a first year consultant was that actually I was working in an environment where actually there was a lot of specialist thing going around me and I could not have been expected to be on top of all of it. Just, it wouldn't have been possible with, you know, just your first year out of the blocks. Yeah. So I worked in an environment where you could ask and, and I actually asked regularly and frequently. And I think that's something that has maybe helped me get too out of my depth at any stage. I would only be too happy to turn to a colleague and ask for, what do you think? What's your take on this? It's wonderful to, to, to have that kind of support. And in so many clinical areas of medicine, that's lacking and people uh, get burnt out. And uh, uh, it's, 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 it's such a tragedy. Uh, of course, uh, that immediately brings on work-life balance. Uh, to some extent, you've dealt with that a little bit, but I mean, everybody talks about it, but how, 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 how do you achieve it or what efforts have you made at it? I've made a mess of it, um, yeah. So, um, well, like, I mean, the last two years, there was just, um, you just had to lean into it. Yeah. The clinical work was busy and, I mean, Hopefully there won't be too many of these pandemics, but we had been preparing for it. And when it came, I think we all felt sort of duty bound to lean into it as much as we could and deliver as much as we could. So um, I think the short answer to your question is I haven't achieved a good work-life balance to date, but I live in hope of that rapidly improving. <laughs> and I don't have to bring your wife in here to confirm this. Oh, I have four kids as well. So I mean, you know what I mean? So I, I won't ask you for any tips then. No, no. Um, Legacy is an important issue. You've kind of touched on it. The, the things that you've achieved already are, are legacies for you and the groups that you've worked with. But um, how do you impart knowledge and skills to uh, those who work with you, who are training with you and so on? Is there any secret to that or any particular approach you have? Well, I think, I think there's no secret. And I think everyone has their own style, works for them. And, um, I mean, if I had to say something, my style would be, I mean, to try and do it with fun. I actually think we're extremely privileged to be doctors working in a public healthcare system 
where I mean, it you know, it, it, it is actually, you know, we all work very hard and there's lots of problems with the job, but it, it sort of is a privilege and I really enjoy it. Yeah. And I try and impart that with the people I work with as well. It has offered me opportunities to work with people from all different parts of the world and to be with families and patients at very difficult periods of time. And I try and impart, you know, again, what an honour that is for any individual to be in those moments with families and stuff. And again, to try and get a sort of boundless enthusiasm for it. And if there's one thing I've learned about the research aspect is you have a great idea. You think it's a great idea. You do years of research seeing if it's going to work or not. And then you do a big trial to definitively answer the question. And I am wrong much more than I've ever been right. So it's a, yeah, I think you have to have a great humility in the face of oh, the problems. Yeah. You could just shout that from the rooftops. And um, our old uh, friend from Greek mythology, Mentor, uh, how about mentoring? Uh, I mean, do you have any particular style uh, with the people who train with you? Well, I suppose it's just to be honest with them. I think... Um, if you were to think back yourself of the people you've learned most from in your career, it's actually not somebody who, you know, explained the ECG to you or explained something. It's actually somebody who sort of confided in you about the things they did and it went well, but maybe I was lucky that day or they went badly and they've reflected on it and why. And I think it's to be honest and transparent about, you know, there's, you know the things you do and why you do them. But I think... Not only do we learn um, more from our mistakes, I think um, the people we're mentoring learn more from them as well. And there's the, a little bit of prediction coming up here. Um, in, uh, say, 10 to 15 years from now, uh, do you have any wild or not so wild predictions about the big changes that are likely to occur in medicine, be it education, clinical training, clinical practice, research, uh, anything that... That, that you think we're going to be ready for this wave? So, so one of the interesting things was saying, like for that remap crap trial I was talking about, um, it can ask multiple test questions at the same time, and so it's an adaptive platform trial. So it's sort of new design, and it could potentially have the ability to transform the clinical world as well. So it, it, it would encapsulate what the learning healthcare system is meant to be. So like, for instance, in COVID-19, we were able to randomize patients to receive all sorts of different interventions and to figure out which, which ones are better. So actually, the trial doesn't ask, is A better than B? It actually tries to define what the optimal treatment is for a patient with that disease. And you could see that being a very efficient way to answer multiple questions. So if a patient comes into a hospital, I mean, with a heart attack or with whatever, you could see them being randomized as part of their care to lots of different interventions. And the system will learn and come up with the most effective and probably the most efficient and most economical way of treating patients. And I think that could be a way the health system could change over the next 10 to 15 years. So we'll, we, we'll watch out for that over our horizon uh, but very interesting, and I think very uh, perspicacious that 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 you've put it like that. Um, the questions haven't, the answers haven't featured robots or anything uh, like that, which of course is a favourite answer for some of these questions. 
if we shift gears a little bit now and go off-piste uh, to discuss life in general and life is reflected many ways in medicine and so it's mirrored in great literature as well. Uh, we're going to talk about books for a minute or a book and we're leaving out Ulysses in this uh, hundred year anniversary. Are there any books you think the whole world should read or uh, the medical graduates should immediately run out to their bookshops and purchase? Well, there are so many, I suppose. You think, I, my favourite one was always A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yes. Yeah. It was just, um, I read it in my probably late 20s and I just enjoyed the mysticism of it. The relevance for medicine would be um, a story that starts and then ends, you know, a whole family comes and goes. And it just describes that. And I think as our day-to-day -day job, we are presents for those um, momentous moments in families. Uh, you know, the great ones um, when, you know, our colleagues in the maternity hospitals and stuff deliver babies, but also, unfortunately, in ICU for a lot of the very tough days for families. Yeah. And that for them, I suppose, not to see it in just that moment, in those few hours, but to see it, I suppose, in the ebbing and waning of families and stories over time. That's a marvellous choice. I, I read it many, many years ago as well, and it had a very big influence yeah. on me. So uh, you heard it here, MGA, go out and purchase. Switching again to uh, other life choices, uh, is there any special holiday place you have that you would uh, recommend to people? You know, a hidden gem, a favourite spot? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, again, actually, when you ask... Um, the answer is yes, and it would be Argentina. And mm. and again, you see, this I mean, somewhat comes back to opportunities you had through doing medicine. I did a medical elective when I was an undergraduate in Trinity, and I worked in a hospital in Peru with two colleagues for six weeks and fell in love with South America, learned Spanish when we were there, and went back many times. And I have to say Argentina was just the most... Exciting place, physically beautiful, from the Andes at the Chilean border to the Iguazu waterfalls in the north and Patagonia in the south. It was, you know, I mean, it was, the scale was colossal, but it was um, really beautiful. But it had every different type of geography and the people were um, amazing, really friendly and had been through some great adversity in their past as well. And I have to say, yeah, Argentina would always be a special place. And if you wanted a steak and a glass of red wine, it's not a bad place either. <laughs> and of course, there was a very interesting Irish migration to Argentina, to the inner Pampas from, amazingly, the, the, the centre of Ireland, uh, not the coasts where the usual emigration came from, but Castle Pollard and places like that in County Westmeath. They have loads of people out there in the Pampas yes. who went out there 200 years ago. Yes, and then uh, there are a few revolutionaries called Murphy and uh, yes. very uh, Spanish-sounding names like that. And Admiral Brown. So people say the year of the hero, the year of the heroine is dead and it's an outdated romantic notion. Uh, I mean, do you have people you admire? Uh, we won't elevate them to heroes, but... Uh, are there people you admire, particular people? So I don't want to sound cliched and stuff, I, 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 but I really have to say, the two years we've just been in, I, I have to say 
um, my colleagues, the doctors, the nurses, and allied health, and all in the ICU. And the, and I mean the, the reason I would say it would be, um, if you wind the clock back, say just under two years ago, uh, it was April twenty twenty. The COVID pandemic was raging. You'd be walking in the hospital. The hospital would be a ghost town because all the elective stuff had shut had shut. And um, but the ICU, the operating theatres, which were looking after ICU patients, the PACU area was looking after ICU patients. It was a hive of activity. And there was this new disease. It was making people very unwell. It was highly contagious. And everybody was still rocking up and going to work. And I met one of my surgical colleagues in this desolated corridor. And I said it had a feeling like, you know, going over the top in World War One. People were coming out and stepping into this, not knowing what it meant for them and their families. And I have to say that that collegiality, but that um, sense of duty, I thought was very, very impressive. That's a very memorable image you've just uh, given us there. And and I can see the, the, the veracity of it uh, because it's been such a cataclysmic uh, two years. Uh, I hope we don't see the like of it again. I'd like to end then by looking for a quote of some kind. It can be in any language, including sign language you like. Any favourite quote? So it's a Brandon Bean quote. Uh, so I like it for a number of reasons. It was, I'll explain a second. But the, the quote goes along the lines of, there is no situation so bad that the presence of a police officer can't make it worse. <laughs> and, and, and so and it, it's so Brandon, for one. Yeah. But... Um, so the reason I, I love that quote is you can say that to any group of people from anywhere in the world. And it's, it's not necessarily the police, but there's always some organization or some group that just causes trouble. Yeah. And I think that quote sums up, well, the Irish ability in any difficult situation to see the humor and to use that as an opportunity to reach out, to make connections with people and actually use that humour to get past the problem or solve the issue. And I think Brendan did it very funnily with that quote. It, it resonates with everybody. That's wonderfully subversive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a very good note to end in, uh, because we've, we've had a fascinating interview uh, with you, uh, uh, especially your perspective on uh, the SARS COVID epidemic uh, that we've just had or might be subsiding, we hope. Uh, and uh, you've brought us on a riveting journey uh, with, with your tales of the intensive care unit and the heroism of the people who rallied to the call. Uh, you know, I think the, the history of that needs to be written uh, both in the medical literature and in literature itself because it's a very worthy theme. At one point, because yeah. I should have said that um, it, it wasn't just sort of the doctors and nurses. I, 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 I actually meant that to say as well, it actually was the Irish people. And I said who their solidarity and actually their ability to take a very tough medicine at the time made the job in the hospital all the more easy. And, you know, because the waves weren't as high rising and were shorter, but also, unfortunately, the patients and their families in the hospital, that was a, a particularly different difficult time for any family to have a relevant hospital and their ability to uh, work with us in really intolerable situations having conversations with full PPE on and stuff was 
completely inspirational as well. So the doctors and nurses deserve a lot of credit, but I think an awful lot of people do as well. And many people would say, hear, hear to that. Thank you for being so generous with your time and also for your honesty and uh, your general approach to to this conversation. Uh, And we're very grateful to you, Alistair. Thank you.